here tonight again uh, for another time of worship. Tonight we're going to uh, continue, continue our ongoing series on um, question and answers. Uh, and just to remind everybody, if you have a Bible-based question uh, that you would like me to take a stab at, uh, then there's a box there in the back uh, that you can place that in. Uh, and also we've uh, recently, and this is a good thing, uh, we've had an influx of questions. Uh, so some of those I'm filtering through and doing just uh, write-ups on them and placing them in the bulletin. Uh, so if you've submitted a question and I haven't addressed it, be checking the bulletin uh, because I've been placing a lot of uh, responses in there. Uh, so we're going to look at two questions tonight. And uh, the first one is regarding the age of accountability. Uh, this person asks, how old should one be before they are baptized? Uh, now that's a very important question, I think. Uh, and, uh, and before we jump into it, let's, let's establish a few principles. Um, I believe that the Bible teaches that babies do not inherit guilt. Uh, babies are born pure. They're born innocent. I think that we see this in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20. It says, The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Um, contrary to what many of our religious neighbors believe and, and uphold, guilt I don't believe is inherited from one person to another. The soul that sins shall die. So babies, babies, infants, don't inherit the guilt that condemns people's souls. They're pure. They're innocent. Jesus says, remember in uh, Luke chapter 18, verse 16, he says, But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. So babies uh, do not inherit the guilt of Adam or born in a state of purity uh, without sin. But obviously, and we know this to be true, there comes a time in a person's life as they grow and develop that they do become culpable. It, there comes a time when they become accountable to their sins. Uh, Jesus says in John chapter 9, verse 41, verse 41, it says, Jesus said to them, uh, and he's talking to the Pharisees here. He says, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. So if there was no way for you to see sin, if there was no way for you to understand it and grasp it, then you wouldn't have that guilt. Then you wouldn't be guilty. But Jesus says to the Pharisees, now that you can see your wrongdoing, your guilt remains. You have guilt in yourself. You know, infants, babies can't see sin. They can't understand sin. They're blind to that. So they're not going to be held accountable for that. But there comes a time in their life as they mature, as they grow, as they develop, that they can see sin and choose to sin, um, and then they become accountable. Another passage I think is helpful is Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 9. Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 9. Paul says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. 
Yet if, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. In verse 9, pay attention here. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. So, Paul alludes to the fact here that there was once a time in his life where he was alive. And what is that referring to? That's not referring to physical life. That's referring to spiritual life. Uh, a right standing relationship with God. There was once a time in which he was spiritually alive. Now, the only time in a person's life when they are spiritually alive in the absence of divine law is before they become an adult who is responsible for their own actions. I think uh, and this passage isn't uh, a... Um, a direct teaching on the age of accountability, but I think we can see the age of accountability uh, specifically here within Romans chapter 7. Paul is saying that at one time, probably when he was a child, uh, he was alive. He was spiritually safe uh, in, uh, in the arms of God. But when he reached a certain point in his life, he became accountable for his actions and he died spiritually. Now the question is, when is that point? At what point does one become accountable for the sin uh, that they commit? Uh, what point does a child become guilty of sin and in need of uh, the blood of Jesus? Now, this can be a very difficult question uh, to answer and to give guidance to. Uh, because, of, because of many different reasons. One of those reasons is because the Bible just doesn't specifically say. There's no certain age. There's no uh, clear-cut, black-and-white age that the Bible gives um, in which one becomes now accountable for the sin that they commit. Uh, and another reason why this is difficult uh, to answer is because I think children mature differently. Uh, not everyone is the same. People have different maturity levels, and that age might be uh, uh, that 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 accountability age might be older for some people uh, than than others. Uh, so there's. There's the uh, question of, of maturity um, that presents difficulty as we answer this. And another question is, or another difficulty is, uh, we love our children and we want to lead them to what's best. You know, we, we don't want to discourage children who, um, who, who are, we don't want, we want, we don't want to discourage uh, children who aren't ready. Um, I, when, when I was a, uh, a youth minister at Laverne, uh, there was a we had a bus ministry, and we would um, we would go out into the community, and um, families would let um, children as young as like three or four years old uh, get on our church bus and, and come to church. But I remember there was this one little boy. His name was Jaden. Uh, he would come forward like every other. Uh, time on Wednesday night on 
Sunday morning, on Sunday night, and he would ask if he could be baptized. He really wanted to be baptized, and he was like four or five years old <laughs> um, at, at that time. He, it was the cutest thing in the world. Uh, but we had a lot of difficulty with that because you don't want to just discourage them and say, no, I mean, don't worry about these things right now. Uh, so so you, don't, you, don't, you don't want to turn them away. You want them to keep asking. You want them to keep uh, searching. Uh, so that's why this, this is difficult. There's not a, a cut and dry answer. You don't want to discourage uh, children. Um, and you don't want to manipulate children uh, who are not there yet and make them think that they are there when they're not. Uh, so there's a lot of difficulty uh, when we attempt to answer this question. Uh, now, I just want to give you some, uh, some guiding principles that I think are helpful um, as we attempt to answer this. And also, if you are maybe a parent asking this question, uh, talking with your children about uh, faith and spirituality and baptism, if you want, to, if you want some, more, uh, some more deeper thought on this, I can point you to some resources uh, that would be very helpful, so keep that in mind. But before I give you some guiding principles that I think are helpful, uh, as we attempt to answer this, let's look at some of the Old Testament data uh, concerning responsibility and the age in which one is definitely responsible for their sins. Let's look at uh, Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 39. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 39. And as for your little ones, who you said would become a prey, and your children who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there, and to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. Now, that, remember, that was before they were going to enter the promised land, and they disbelieved, and, they, and that generation wasn't allowed to go in. They wandered around in the wilderness for, uh, for, for, 40, for 40 years. Um, and, and the text says uh, that these, uh, these children... Um, that, uh, that were with the adults, they weren't accountable for their sins yet. They had no knowledge of good or evil. Um, so they weren't accountable uh, for uh, the disbelief uh, that they committed. Now, uh, it gives a specific age, um, a cutoff age, of those that did get to enter the promised land, that lived in that generation. In Numbers chapter 32, verse 11, it says, Surely none of the men who came up out of Egypt from 20 years old and upward shall see the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, because they have not wholly followed me. So we see here the age of 20, 20 years and older were culpable for disbelieving God. They were accountable for that sin. Um, Another passage in 2 Chronicles chapter 34, verses 1 through 3, it says, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and walked in the ways of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David his father, and in the twelfth year... He began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places and the Asherim and the carved and the metal images. So Josiah, if you add up all the, 
all the numbers here. Josiah was 16 years old when the text says he began to search uh, God. He began to search the heart of God and submit himself to uh, God. He was 20 when he began to purge Jerusalem of idols. So we see this uh, age of 20 again as uh, this this age that is very significant within a person's life. Uh, another example in Ezra chapter 3 verse 8, it says, Now in the second year, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and, and, Je- and Je- Jeshua, uh, the, the son of uh, jo- Josadak, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. So they had to be 20. They had to be 20 years old to supervise the construction of the house of the Lord. Again, that age of 20. We're looking at, at numbers here. And, and last, lastly, in Numbers chapter 1, verse 3, from 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war, you and Aaron shall list them company by company. So soldiers that uh, were enlisted in, uh, in the army had to be 20 had to be 20 years old. Now, what does all this mean? Why am I reading all these verses? 20, year, 20 years old, it seems within the, within the Old Testament, it seems to be this pivotal moment in someone's life. Uh, it, it, now, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't give us a specific answer, uh, I, I, don't, I don't think, when we're talking about the age of account, accountability. But I think that we can conclude that 20 is a coming-of-age period that we see within the Bible. It's a time when one is given weightier responsibility um, than they had before because they're more cognitively able to distinguish between right and wrong and good and evil. Now, that doesn't, that doesn't mean that 20 is the magic number, uh, and that's, that's, not what I'm, that's not what I'm trying to say. But I believe that it's a guiding principle which tells us that 20 is um, an age where an individual is most definitely accountable for their sins. And, you know, if we're, if, if we're looking for a specific number, uh, I don't think we can pinpoint a specific number for everyone, but I do think that we can faithfully say that it's, for most people, unless there's a mental disability um, or, or some other factor like that, that it's going to be less than 20 um, for the vast majority of people. Now, we could look at a few more passages uh, that, um, that give numbers and ages, uh, but beyond that, really, there's no biblical information that gives us an exact age when a child becomes accountable. But uh, as I said, I want to be helpful, uh, and I want to give you some principles that uh, would, um, would help parents uh, for those who have have children who are maybe ready to be baptized or are thinking about it. And I have three things here, uh, three, three questions. Number one is, how does your child participate in worship? When you look at them during a worship service, what are they doing? How are they, uh, do, do they sing? 
Do they um, participate and listen to the sermon uh, in, in, a, in, in, um, in a way that they, that they can? Um, are they, are they pay atten- paying attention during the Lord's Supper? Um, or do, do they seem disinterested? Are they, do they seem distracted? Um, are they ingesting things spiritually? Uh, now, that's not exact for everyone. I think they're, they're sometimes adults who don't participate meaningly within worship. But I think it's a guiding principle as we attempt to um, see when our children are ready, how do they respond in worship? Are they, are, are they thinking about spiritual things? Are they trying to respond to God positively? Those are questions that I think um, are, are helpful as we uh, try to determine this age within our own children. Uh, number two, uh, second question, how does the young person respond to meaningful, open-ended questions? How does the young person respond to meaningful, open-ended questions? When you ask them something like, what does repentance mean? What do they say? How do they reason through that? When you ask them, uh, what did the blood of Jesus accomplish? What's their response to that? If their response displays this kind of moral reasoning and, 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 and thought, um, it, it might mean, it, and doesn't automatically mean that they're accountable for their sins, uh, but it might mean that they're moving in a right direction. So that's a question, I think, that, uh, that we can ask as we determine this age uh, within our own, our own families? How does the young person respond to um, spiritual questions that require reasoning and thinking? Uh, and then lastly, and uh, this isn't a question, but uh, re- read the Gospels with them and ask them what it means to be like Jesus. Read the Bible with them and ask them, what do you think this means? How do you apply this in your context? You know, say, for an example, say, say you're reading the Gospel of Mark, and uh, like we're doing our series on, on Sunday night, and say you're reading the story of the uh, miraculous healing of the leper in chapter 1, verse 40, uh, how Jesus, remember the text says that Jesus was moved with pity. Jesus was moved with compassion over the suffering of the leper. Uh, say you're reading that with your child, and you ask them, what does that mean for you? What, uh, how, how, how would you be like Jesus in that way? And maybe, maybe, they, uh, maybe they said something like, well, it means uh, to sit with the kid that gets bullied a lot in English class and to show them compassion and to show them that I care about them and make friends with them. Uh, you know, if, if they answer an open-ended question like that with reasoning and thought and are able to apply um, Christ-like attributes in their, uh, in, in their world, that might mean uh, that they are moving in, uh, in, in the right direction, that they are um, uh, getting to that age. Again, not, not to say that that's, um, that's exact uh, for every single person, uh, but I think it's a good question for, uh, for parents to ask um, and, uh, and for us to do. You know, just read the Bible with them. Read them and then ask them point blank, 
what these things mean, what they mean to you. How would you apply this? How would you do this at school, um, in your relationship with your parents, uh, wherever you are at? So those are three principles that I think uh, might be helpful. Um, and, and remember that these are just principles. They're, they're not exact for everyone. Uh, so I think that's important to um, keep in mind. And I also want to say, because I think this is very important, I, I so wish I did this when I was baptized. I think it's very important for parents to encourage their children when they are baptized to take out a little journal or a piece of paper or something like that and just write down, tell the child or, or tell, tell the young person to write down why they're being baptized. Why, 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 are you, why are you doing this? Write it down in a journal, keep it, because in the future, if they come to a point and they begin to doubt and they begin to question, you know, did I do this for the right reason? Am I really saved? They can look at that journal. They can go back in time and see their thoughts and see their reasoning and see what led them personally to that decision. Uh, so I, th I think that's, that's very important uh, to add. I think it's also important to start as early as you can telling your children about Jesus, reading the Bible with them, praying with them, um, so that they see you as a source of spiritual, spirituality that they can go to um, to have their questions answered. Uh, right now, Titus is two and a half, and we're, we're trying to read through stories in the Gospel of John. I say, what's the Gospel of John about, buddy? And he says, Jesus. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so it's, it's never, never too early uh, to start. So I hope that was helpful. Again, uh, if you would like um, more information, uh, there's much more that could be said, but uh, I can point you to some good resources if you are... Um, if you are in this, uh, this situation. Uh, okay, so secondly, tonight, see if the clicker works. Could you advance that slide there, Luke? How can I develop a deeper trust in God? How can I develop a deeper trust in God? Now, I think it's important to note first, uh, before we attempt to answer this, that God is a person. God is a person. God is not this... Uh, spiritual force that you that that's like in the movie Star Wars. God is a person. When you're saved by the blood of Jesus, what happens? You begin a relationship with a person when you're saved. So the question is, and I think that it's helpful to look at it at this angle. How can I develop a deeper trust in this person? that we call God? How can I trust Him? How can I, uh, how can I know this person more intimately? And I think that's critical to understand because in my experience, when, when, when some ask questions like this, what it means, what they mean is, how can I be more committed to uh, God's law? How can I be more committed in my devotion to a set of religious rules and laws? All of that's important, but if our pursuit is a deeper commitment solely to uh, religious laws and not so much a deeper commitment to and love for an actual person, we're missing the mark tremendously. 
uh, as, as we seek to know this person and be transformed by this person. So how can I develop a deeper trust in this God, in this divine being, in this person? Uh, number one, spend time with him. Spend time with him. You know, how, how did you develop a deeper relationship with your spouse if you're married? You went on dates. You spent time with them. You gave them your life. You shared your life with them, and they shared their life with you. It works very similar in our relationship with God. When we spend time with Him um, in a multitude of ways, through prayer and Bible study, uh, we're, we're, we're more capable of, 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 of seeing Him, of knowing Him, and of, and, and of trusting Him, and we begin to grow. We begin to grow uh, tremendously. Number two, uh, drink from the glory of God as revealed in Jesus Christ consistently. You know, the more that you come to understand, and this is a process of growth that we're all, uh, that we're all growing in, but the more you come to understand and see the worth and value of this person, Jesus, trusting Him is going to come quite naturally. The more you see, the, the more you have an accurate picture of the weight of God as revealed in Jesus Christ. This is the kind of mentality that the Apostle Paul had in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 11. Remember, Paul says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he, he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, he says, I counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may be that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Paul has this attitude of this a, this a, a deeper trust in Jesus. It it comes naturally to Paul. Uh, because he consistently drinks from the glory, the worth, the value of this Jesus. The fact that the God of the universe, the God that created everything that you see around you, who is holy and unique beyond that of any other, became a man and bore on himself the, the sins of humanity. The more we see that, the more we see the magnitude of Christ's glory, of his value, of his worth, trusting him and diving deeper in relationship with him will only come natural to us. And then lastly, allow his love to control you. Paul had this, there was this controlling effect on the Apostle Paul because of the love of Christ. Remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 through 15, for the love of Christ, it controls us. In other translations, it urges us on, it compels us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. 
So Christ's love, not, not Paul's love for Christ, uh, that's, you know, the, the love that I have for Jesus is, is wishy-washy sometimes. It's, it's flimsy. It goes in and out of a level of intensity. Not my love, not Paul's love for Christ, but Christ's love for Paul almost has this controlling effect on him, he says. When I see him, when I spend time with him, when I drink from his glory and his worth, I have no place to go. I have no place to go but to him into his arms. His love infiltrates every part of me and saturates me and gives me strength every day to truly trust him and dive deeper into relationship with him. So that's what I would say on that question. Uh, this evening, uh, if anyone has anything that they would like for us uh, to pray with you for or about. The invitation is extended to you. Likewise, if you don't know the Lord Jesus, uh, you have an opportunity to embrace Him in relationship, to know Him and the joy and the satisfaction that He brings in a life that's lived for God's glory. You can do that tonight. You can begin that relationship with Jesus uh, by seeing him by seeing this Jesus, believing him, uh, repenting of your sins, confessing faith in him, and being immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins, beginning a relationship with him. If you have any need tonight, why don't you come as we stand and as we sing?